Well, good morning. It is always good to be in the house of the Lord on the Lord's day, I believe. So if you're healthy enough to be here today, you ought to say thank you to the Lord, I would say. But, uh... but if you do have your Bibles with you, we're going to be uh, in Acts again. I'm going to be in chapter 6. And uh, I'm going to read the text, and we're going to pray, and we will get into the Word of God. And beginning at verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And it says, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Father, this morning we'd like to just come before you and just give you thanks today that we're able to be here. So, Lord, I need much grace. I need these words to be a reality in my life. And, Father, today I pray, God, that that you would get glory for yourself in all that we do. I pray, God, that your word would be proclaimed and that Christ would be exalted and your will would be done, nothing more and nothing less. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the last time we went basically through seven chapters, seven verses, so we've added one verse today. The last time I talked on this, we talked about what were the qualifications of a deacon. We looked at the need that was going on in the church. The church was growing tremendously. It was a time of favor. God was adding to the church. I mean, we're probably up around 20,000 church members here. And so at this point in the book of Acts, you see that the apostles, and, and primarily we're looking at Peter and we're looking at John doing several different things. But from chapter 6, 7, and 8, we stop and we, we focus our attention on, on an entirely new work in the church. And it's the office of a deacon. And up until this point, there's, there's not been anything like that. And so when we see this, we see what was the reason for it. Well, there were, there were widows that were being neglected, and it was causing a separation in, in the church, a division. And what we're seeing is the church had grown to a certain size that the apostles were getting overwhelmed. They could not keep up. So they said, 
We need to choose seven men full and has a good reputation. They're, they're full of the spirit and of wisdom that we may put in charge of this task. And that's what they did. And they chose these seven men. And then in verse 7, it says, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So, so what we see happening is it looks like the work of the ministry had somewhat stalled out because there were these needs in the church. And so once they appointed these seven men and they started, you know, looking to the needs of these widows and no doubt other things, Peter and John and the rest of the apostles and those that were called in that were able to devote themselves fully to prayer and to the ministry or the preaching of the Word of God. Now, these two chapters, we're going to look at two of these these men that were ordained deacons, and the first one is going to be Stephen, and the second one is going to be Philip. I find it odd that I think that everyone would agree that what God has, how God has set up his church and how God has ordained that certain things should be, I would say that we would all say that that's the way it should be. I believe that we try to be very biblical here. Are we perfect? No, but, but we try. I believe we try our best. But when it comes to the office or the appointment of a deacon, we seem to, to look at it, it's almost slighted. Now, I want to, today what we're going to talk about, we talked about qualifications last time. Today we're going to talk about what the character would look like, the characteristics of a deacon. But first I want to tell you what they are not. Just some things that we see commonly in churches. A deacon is not just some guy that's been a faithful attendee for a long time. Just kind of a quiet guy, just a good guy. Okay, that's, that's not a characteristic of one. A characteristic is not a guy that's the mover and the shaker in the business world. He's got a lot of money. The thinking goes, man, he's got a lot of money. We can do a lot of things. He runs the church like a business. That's not a characteristic of a deacon. And I find this an odd one. I know in Baptist circles that once a man is ordained a deacon in a church... If he moves his membership, well, his, his being a deacon seems to transfer with him. It's like being a Supreme Court judge. It's a lifetime appointment, apparently. Now, I don't know where in the world you'd find that in Scripture, but I want you to know that if someone comes to our church and they previously were a deacon in a church, that does not mean you're a deacon here. Because we do believe there are qualifications. We do believe that a person needs to be examined. So we want to look at these, these character traits that you're going to see in this. And if you look at verse 8, he says, Stephen, full of grace and power. There's two right there. But we're going to back up over here. And we're going to just back up a few verses. And in verse 3, he says this. He says, for them to select among them seven men of... Listen, the first one is good reputation. The second one is full of the Spirit and of wisdom. So you could say he's full of the Spirit and he's full of wisdom. And then you look over in verse 5, and it says, Stephen, talking about him, he says he was a man 
full of faith, and again, and of the Holy Spirit, and then down in verse 8, full of grace and power. So we've got a good reputation, we've got full of wisdom, we've got full of grace, full of the Spirit, full of faith, and full of power. That's what we see as characteristics. So let me ask you this again. So what is a deacon? Well, a deacon, the Greek is diakono, or I'm not sure how to say that. I don't know Greek. That's what it looks like to me. It simply means to serve. It's to lay, if you get down to the root meaning, it's, it's like to labor in the dust. It's like to, to get down on the lowest level and labor. Now, it's not, it's not something that is like a slave. It's not like a forced labor, but it's a voluntary, it's a voluntary labor to serve others. It's basically saying, I want to serve someone. So simply put, it's someone who seeks the needs of other, others for their good and for God's glory. And that's what a deacon is. So I got a question. If this is a God-ordained office, and the idea is to serve for the good of others and for God's glory, why, why would people not want to be in this category, why would there not be a desire to seek this out? No, we'll get to that question in a moment. So I want to go over these characteristics of a deacon. And we'll start with the first one. It's a good reputation. And as you go through these things, the question you want to ask is, can someone be a servant without these in there? So the first one is a good reputation. And I'm just going to read this. You don't have to turn there because I know I, I go long and so... I'll keep from turning as much as I can. But in 1 Samuel 18, verse 30, it's talking about David when he was serving King Saul. And it says this. It says, David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. In Psalms 22, 1, it says, A good name is to be more desired than great wealth and favor better than silver and gold. In Ecclesiastes 7.1, it says a good name is better than ointment. To have a good name in the community, to have a good reputation in, in the church, in the body of Christ, he said it's more to be desired than even gold and silver. It's something that should be highly esteemed. When David went out with all of Saul's servants, it says that his name was highly esteemed because he operated his conduct in a way that was with wisdom. I cannot preach on this without thinking of Justin. Not just because he's one of my best friends. I only know of one guy that said he didn't like him. And I thought, what's wrong with that guy? I don't even think he knows him. But he has a good name amongst the community. Why does he have a good name? Well, let me just show you this. Here's the recipe for a good reputation, okay? One is this. He works hard. I mean, people respect people who work hard. So there's one thing in there. The second one is he's an honest person. And I'll get off... I'll get off, Justin. I won't won't spotlight you no more. 
For someone to have a good reputation, they need to be honest. They're hardworking and honest. The third one is this. They need to be willing to serve others. Let me ask you something. Do people who don't work hard and they... And they're not honest and they don't, they're not, they don't help and serve others. Do they have a good reputation amongst a community? No. They need to have a good attitude while they're doing these things. They need to be filled with humility. They need to be kind and they need to be good. Now, I could probably add to that list a lot. But that's a good recipe right there for just having a good reputation. Okay? The second one is this. It is to be full of the Spirit. Now, phrases like that in the world that we live in, to be filled with the Spirit, it can go a lot of different directions depending on what your background is. I'm not going to pick on anybody today, but I'm just going to simply say this. What does it mean to be full of the Spirit? Well, let me tell you this. Anything that you are full of, it is what controls you. If you are full of anger, it controls you. It controls your thoughts. It controls your mouth. It controls all of that. If you're, if you're full of, of, of joy, it pours out of you. If you're full of rage, it's going to come out. So someone who is full of the Spirit means that they are controlled or led by the Spirit. Now, we'll turn to this. So, if you will, turn over to I mean, to Galatians chapter 5 and in verse 5. And let's just read something. Chapter 5, verse 5. And beginning in, in verse 22, listen to what it is. He says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, it is joy, it is peace, it is patience, it is kindness, it is goodness, it is faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then he says, if we live by the Spirit... Let us also walk by the Spirit. I want you to know that if you are full of the Spirit, just by just by the way that you're living, you're being controlled, you're being led by the Spirit. At the same time, you are crucifying the desires and the passions of the flesh. He's simply saying this. If we are alive because of the Spirit, then let us also walk or let us be controlled or be led by the Spirit. That's what he's saying. So the third point, he says, be full, to be full of wisdom. Turn your Bibles, if you will, over to I mean, to James chapter three. I do handwritten notes, so that's why we turn a lot because I'm not going to write all these down. But in James chapter three, in verse thirteen, he says, "Who among you is wise and understanding?" He says, let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, 
He says, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. He said, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly and natural and demonic. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. I want you to know that sometimes in, in churches, there is a, 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 it's like a competition that goes on. There's jealousies that go on amongst ministry, amongst preachers, amongst, uh, you know, singers and things like that. And people are trying to get ahead of the other person. I mean, even in churches, folks, listen, there's people trying to climb the ladder of success. And if the only way to do that is somehow get this guy under you, and you think somewhere in there that God is in that? That wisdom is demonic. But he says this, he says, the wisdom from above is first pure. It's peaceable, gentle, reasonable. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, I want to ask you something. Can somebody serve without being full of wisdom? I mean, we, we do. I mean, listen, we, these things, I mean, this is the ideal. This is what we need to be striving for. The fourth thing, we need to be full of faith. And what this is, is this, it's, it's, it's not, it's to not only profess faith, it's not just to say I'm a believer, but it is to, to be evident in the actions of our life. To see that faith, to see it lived out. Let me ask you something, is it enough to say I'm a believer? Is it enough to, to look at the Word of God and say, I believe it, and then it not be a reality in your life? No, it's not. You, you, you look at Hebrews chapter 11, and what do you see? You, you see over and over. You see men of faith. You, know, you look at Noah. When God told him what to do, Noah moved with fear, and he built an ark. He built a boat. He did exactly what God said according to exactly how God told him to do it. We see Abraham, when God says, Abraham... You get your family and you get away from your family and you go to a land that I'm going to show you. Abraham went by faith. When he says, go offer up Isaac on the altar, to me a burnt offering, Abraham got up and moved by faith. We're talking about people who are so committed to Christ that they are full of faith that when God says, you do this, we do this. If God says don't do this, we don't do it. We want to be people who are full of faith. The fifth characteristic is this. It's full of grace. <clears throat> I think a good definition of, of what it means to be full of grace is, first of all, look over in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, in the beginning of the chapter, he says this. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And he says, and not only this, 
But we also exult in our, listen, in our tribulations, knowing the tribulation, it brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character. It brings hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We see these graces in our life and we're full of that. You look over in uh, in first or second Peter. In chapter 1, and look what he says here. I got this new Bible, and I'm having a hard time turning pages. Look what he says in verse 3 of chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. He says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence... For by these he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And now for this very reason also, applying all diligence. Now listen. Applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence Knowledge and in your knowledge, self-control and in your self-control, perseverance and in your perseverance, godliness and in your godliness, brotherly kindness and in your brotherly kindness, love. Now, listen, for if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. And therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. What is he saying? Now listen, we're talking about deacons here. But this goes to every Christian, every Christian, whether you're appointed a servant in the church as a deacon, you are a servant of the Lord. These things are not just for a certain, you know, group of people, but they're for everybody. It's not so, this is not extreme Christianity. This is not radical. This is normal Christianity. Number six is this, full of power. And number six is like this. This is the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Look over in in Acts chapter 1, and in verse 8, listen to what he says. Now he's talking about them. They're asking the question, you know, when will you restore the kingdom? But in verse 8, listen... He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Primarily speaking, when he's talking about being full of power, he is talking about the proclamation of the word of God and the gospel. Now. We'll be full of power that we will overcome things. We will 
you know, you, you go from having struggling marriages, from, you know, raising children and all these different things that we deal with and we battle with. Look at the look at this, how you laid this out for us. To have a good reputation, to be full of the spirit, to be full of wisdom, to be full of faith, to be full of grace and to be full of power. One thing I do want to point out, because I do believe primarily speaking that he's talking about the proclamation of the word of God. There's this idea that deacons just kind of sit there. They may take up the money. They'll pack like we don't do it here, but they'll pass the, the offering plate. That's their duty. And then they might come up and mow the yard and they might pay the light bill. No, no, you're you're about to find out that these men that were ordained deacons, Stephen and Philip, they were incredibly anointed preachers. They were blessed. They were full of the spirit. They were full of wisdom. They were full of the power of God. Let me just tell you this. Stephen has the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. That's the recorded. Paul has the longest sermon. Paul preached all night. We'll get to that later on. He preached all night. So that's probably the longest one. But the longest sermon on record is is Stephen's sermon. It's not Peter's. It's not Paul. It's, it's, It's Stephen's. Now I want to show you something else. These six qualities... This isn't something that, that Peter and John, they got together and they said, all right, guys, we need to choose seven men. And once, once you're a deacon, you need to start looking like this. No, these, these six qualities were evident beforehand. This is what caused the, the church to see that. To say, what men would you pick out? And I want you to think about Southern Church. If you look around today, who would you pick out? In this group right here, who would you pick out to be a deacon? I want to show you something else. These six qualities were evidenced in their life to be a servant, not to be a leader. You understand what I'm saying here? They were not choosing these men based on these qualifications so that you will now be the leader. They said, we want to see those qualifications in these men in order that they may serve. Now, here's where we have a disconnect with the generation that we live in. In in Luke chapter 22, you don't have to turn there. I'll turn there. I'll just read a bit. In Luke chapter 22, I want to read something to you i got to find Luke, though. Listen to this. In Luke 22, verse 24 through 27, it says, And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And this is his disciples. They're, they're walking along and they're arguing. Now, can you imagine this? Can you imagine Peter saying, Well, well I'm the guy that's always jumping up first. And other guy's like, yeah, and you're a bonehead. Look at all the things you fell on your face. Well, at least I stepped out of the boat, you know. I mean, you'll have things, you know, you got, you could have Judas saying, well, I'm the guy that carries the money. I'm the one guy, I'm a, I'm a zealot. I'm ready to restore Israel. James and John, 
sons of thunder went to their mother and said, Mom, would you tell Jesus to make us the greatest? These are grown men. I know, it, I know our culture probably doesn't get it right, but when I read that, I'm like, really? You had your mom go. I wonder if she had him by the hand. <laughs> we made all the other ones mad, but look what, look what it says here. He said, their, their question is, which one of them will be regarded as the greatest? And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. We're, we're here, you're there. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. We live in a generation of entitlement. Read some things that came to my mind. We live in a time where people want to be in the place of leading without ever having learned to follow. And this is, this is the way the world we live in is structured. How does this happen? Well, you've got to have a degree to do this job. I was talking with a guy at work the other day. He's our heat and air guy. And he said he had a job just waiting with Linux. He was going to be their regional guy. It was going to be a plush six-figure job. He knew everything you could know about Linux. He has the highest license in the state as far as a heat and air guy goes. He said, you can't get a better one than me. The guy wanted to hire him right on the spot. Except he didn't have a four-year degree. So the kid who comes out with the four-year degree that doesn't know nothing about Linux, doesn't know nothing about their equipment, couldn't turn your heat and air on with a... If he had the instructions in his hand... He gets the job. Okay, that's the way the world operates. Smart, no, but that's the way it operates. Is that the way the church operates? This is what happens. Now, I am a big believer that the church is God's instituted body that we teach, that we, that people are equipped and, and, and that, that, that they could go out and do things. But the way it works is we, we go to a seminary or something like that and we come out and we think automatically, oh, we're ready to do this. I want you to know that couldn't be any further from the truth. We got people that want to be in charge without coming under authority. We see people that they want to be in the position to order others without, re- but at the same time, they refuse orders. This entitlement, it's about telling others to work hard, but never having learned hard work. Entitlement teaches that, that we would teach others how to serve without ever serving and to be honored without ever going through the process of humbling ourselves. Entitlement. I want to talk to our young men for a moment. We got several men in here that feel called to the 
to the ministry. Listen to these things. Learn to serve before you try to lead. Learn to serve before you try to lead. Okay? You go back and you look at Moses. How many of us always talked about how Moses, when God called him, he says, I, 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 don't, I can't even talk well. He's stuttering like I'm stuttering. Well, let me show you something about Moses prior to that. In Acts chapter 7, verse uh, 22, speaking of Moses, said, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. At 40 years of age, Moses wasn't a stammering tongue guy that couldn't talk. He was a man that spoke mighty. He, he was a man that did mighty deeds. And Moses, probably through the teaching of his mother, said, hey, you're a... You're a handsome boy. The Bible says he was a beautiful child. I don't know if Moses went by the mirror kind of checking himself out, but he went out there one day to visit his brethren, and he was going to deliver Israel, taking down one Egyptian at a time. And his strength and his understanding and his ability to communicate, and he got found out, and he ran for 40 years. And when God had stripped him of all of his confidence, what was he doing those 40 years? He was tending sheep for his father-in-law. Dumbest animal on the face of the earth. You want to learn how to care for people? Go care for a dumb animal. An animal that ain't got sense to stay out of the water. Don't have enough know-how to get flipped back over. Go genuinely care for someone who don't have the sense to care for their self. Learn to serve before you try to lead. And by the way, that process of learning to lead was 40 years. Moses' life is broke up into three 40-year sections. Forty years being raised up in Pharaoh's house, being trained by his mother. Forty years away. And then when he was 80, God says, I'm going to use you now to lead my people. And he says, you've got the wrong guy. Second thing is this. Learn submission before authority. In Matthew 8, 9, you don't have to turn there. You can if you want, if you're a fast turner. But in Matthew 8, 9, look what he says. Beginning in verse 5, it says, When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him and imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, he says, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, now listen to this. This, this is a Roman. He says, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Think about the, the humility here. Jesus says, I'll go with you. And he says, I'm not worthy for you to do that. You just say the word and he'll be healed. And then he says this. He says, for I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes and to another, come. And he comes into my slave, do this. And he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith 
with anyone in Israel. What was this man saying? I'm also a man under authority? You see, because he was under the authority of the Roman Empire, and because they had made him a centurion, that when he said to these certain ones, you do this, they had to do it. You go there, they went. And he recognized that Jesus was under the authority of God. And he says, I know that by my own, my own life, I know that if you speak it, it will happen. Submission before authority. Next point. Character is more important than academics and ability. Character is more important than academics and ability. You may know a lot. You may be the mo- have the most ability of anyone in the room. When you look at this chapter, all of these things that we look at, good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, full of grace and power, you don't get those things through academics. You can get understanding. You can get knowledge. And that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But I want you to know that God is far more concerned with your character than he is your understanding intellectually and the ability that you think you have. Because you know what? At best, you know, you know the people that you think are the best preachers? They, they may be the best preachers. But I'm going to tell you why you hear them. Because God has put them and given them a platform. That's why you're hearing them. And just as quick as God gives them a platform, He can take it off there. I get on sermon audio a lot, and I'll just randomly go through a text that I'm teaching on. I don't go to the featured speakers. I don't go to the classical ones. I just go and type in a Bible you know, passage, and I just start fanning through it. And right now, I like to find the guys from Ireland and Scotland and England, you know. I've got to learn the language, you know. There's some good preachers out there. But remember this, it's not about your ability to preach. I want to ask you a question. Do you think God needs you to preach? I remember when Dexter moved to Medill, he'd been preaching a lot down in Texas. He calls me one day, and I'm just going to tell like what he's kind of whining. It's like, man, I just I ain't getting to preach. This is killing me here. I've got this fire in me. I said, now wait a second. Did God lead you there? Yeah, but. And I said, well, here's what I had to go through when I left the church we were a part of that, you know, many years. I felt called to preach too. I'd been out of that church for a year and I wasn't preaching anywhere. I'm walking down the road. Wait, you, if you ever saw me praying on the road, you'd think it'd be a good YouTube video. It's like, here's this crazy man. I'll be waving my arms and. Lord, if you've called me to preach, why can't I preach anywhere? And it was like the Lord told me. He said, do I need you to preach? Do I need you to preach? And then here was the other question. If I never preached again, is Jesus enough? 
that's what I told Dexter that day. See, God doesn't need me to preach. I, I thank him that he uses me. The last point on this to the young men, and listen to me. If you can't serve as a servant, then you are not qualified to serve as a leader. And to be honest, that goes for anybody. Anyone desiring ministry, if you cannot serve as a servant, you can't serve as a leader. You see, these men that were being ordained here, they were not being ordained to lead. That was already there. That was already established. They said, we need somebody to come and help us. When I met Paul Wilson, he was the youth pastor at a church. He mentioned earlier today he didn't have two nickels to rub together. I feel bad. He would come out to our house sometimes. I didn't know how bad off he was financially. You know, I'd say, are you hungry? Yeah, I'm not hungry. He's starving. He's six foot five, you know, and this guy's hungry. Oh, y'all got ramen noodles? Yeah. Okay, don't ever let Paul fix ramen noodles for you. It's beyond nasty. Crunches them up, a little bit of milk, nukes it for a minute, adds the powder, and it's like, dude, we, we can make some for you the right way. That's not the point of what I'm talking about, though. He didn't have any money, and, and, and the pastor would say, hey, I want you to take all this youth, I want you to take them to this big get-together thing. They didn't give him no money to do that. He just had to figure it out. Whatever that, that pastor asked him to do, he faithfully did it. You know what was going on then? And, it, and a lot of it was wrong. And he'll tell you that. But you know what he was learning? He was learning how to serve. He was learning how to submit, and then eventually he learned to discern what was right and wrong in serving and submitting. Randy Tyler felt called to the ministry. Y'all don't know it, but Randy's a hardcore introvert. But he felt a call to the point that he said, I've got to overcome this. And he submitted. He went to Conway. He submitted to the... He came back. He, wherever he was at, he submitted. What was he doing? He was learning to serve, learning to serve, learning to serve. I personally, since about 2003... Justin and Misty has been with me and my wife that whole time. I mean, I guarantee you people looked at them and thought, why is that ag teacher hanging out with that guy? Anything I asked him to do, he would do it. Hey, can you lead worship? Yeah, I can do it. Can you do that? Yeah, I can do it. One day I went to him and I said, we ain't having that crazy old teaching anymore. You're teaching it next, next Sunday. Remember that? Next Sunday you're teaching. Okay. He never had any aspirations of being anything. And the day came and I looked at him and I said, my gosh, this guy needs to be my co-elder. Everyone goes through a period where you are learning to serve. Sadly, today we have such a millennial type generation that 
young men are not even raised up learning how to work. It's this entitlement. Parents go through this thing where it's like, I didn't have, I had to work, I'm going to give my kid, you're doing your kid a disfavor when your idea is I'm not going to make him work for anything. If you can't serve as a servant, then you're just not qualified to serve as a leader. To my older brothers here, we see this a lot of times. Oh, I just, I've wasted so much time. I'm just, I'm, I'm not worthy to do that. Well, I want you to know something. False humility is not humility at all. False humility is not humility at all. Where there's a need, we need faithful men stepping up to the plate. Moses couldn't speak. And God says, who made your mouth, Moses? If I want you to speak, you'll speak. Gideon, you've got the wrong guy, Lord. My, we're the smallest tribe. My family's the least in this tribe, and I'm the least in my family. I'm the least of the least of the least. I'm going to use you, Gideon. Jeremiah, I'm just a youth. Yeah, well, I chose you and formed you before you were even born. Sarah, I can't have a child. I'm too old. No, you will have a child about this time next year. It is good to be humble, but wrong humility is not humility at all. Some of you older brothers, you have experience, and that's something that, you know, I remember Dex, I I don't want to just keep highlighting him, but he just went through a deal where he interviewed to be a pastor at a place. And he's telling me what he's going to do, and there's part of me, I'm like, okay, but there's part of me going... I don't know if I'd go quite like that about it. I understand what he's saying, but, well, he kind of found out. And here's the thing. What you can't have at 27 that we have at 53 is you can't have experience. Right, wrong, or indifference, you just don't have it. Now, you ask him now about a pulpit committee. You ask him now about sitting down for these things. He'll go, let me tell you. He's got some experience. That's how it happens. And some of you older, I don't mean old, but you older brothers in the church, you've got experience and you're just clamped down. And also, I see some of you that I think could step up and do what we're talking about today. And I'm wondering why you wouldn't do it. Because I want you to know something. If you're going to tell me, well, I just don't have time. Really? I've got time? I work a full-time job. I'm on call this weekend. Really? When Randy has work, he don't always have work. When he doesn't have work, there's kind of a stress of, I ain't got no work, I ain't got no money. Now I've got work. He was up, the last sermon he preached, folks, he was up till five in the morning getting it ready. Paul continues to work on degrees. I don't know why. God knows. There's probably nobody in the church that works more than Justin Wright. As an ag teacher in the community, it's not just a eight till three job. Sometimes this phone rings. I'm like, give me the phone. Go look at your cow yourself. You don't. Even, you just want to talk. I mean, he'll say, okay, I'll be there. I've seen it over and over and over. 
So don't don't tell me that you don't have time. What you need to be examining in your life is this. Do you see a need and why not you? Because if the body is in need of it, is the body in need of deacons? Yes. Who set up deacons in the church? God did. There is a need. There is a reason for people to step up. When David went down to check on the armies of Israel... His brother jumps on him. He says, you're, you're just, you're, you youth, you're just trying to cause trouble. And he responds with, is there not a cause? Is there not a need here? To my older brothers, if you feel that thing where you, you just don't feel the confidence, you look at some of these young guys. These young guys kind of intimidate me, too, a little bit. They learn things in a book way. These guys look sharp. I know they're pretty sharp. I learned things the layman's way, the school of hard knocks way. They think they're big fancy words impress me, but I don't even know what they mean. (laughs) Here's what I'm going to tell you. Humble yourself. Humble yourself and God will, he will exalt you. The conclusion is this. I want to ask you a question. Is your greatest desire... Is it to be like Christ? Is it to be like Christ? Well, let me show you something. In the Gospel of John, chapter 13, it says this. Chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, it says, The devil, having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Listen to this. He got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. My son-in-law, Andy, just studied out a passage in Luke. And he got on the part about when John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to unlatch his shoes, the the latchets on on his sandals. The lowest form of servant you could be was somebody that washed somebody else's feet. John says this. He says, I'm not even worthy to do that. Here we see Jesus. And, and, and here's the problem. We don't get how huge this is. I'm picturing in this upper room, I'm picturing the disciples are gathered to Jesus at the Passover. They think he's about to take over as king. There's, there's some excitement in the room. I mean, they they really think this is about to happen. And I don't even think they were paying attention. They're just talking and having fellowship. I don't know how it all went. And Jesus just kind of walks over to the side. And he takes his robe and he, he lays it down. And he picks up this towel. And he girds himself. And I don't know who looked over there. Somebody says, Peter, look. 
They probably hadn't noticed that there wasn't even anybody there to wash their feet when they came in. And not one of them thought of doing it. It got pin dropped quiet in that room. And he took water and he poured it into a basin. And he walked over to Judas. And he set it down and he took his feet and took his sandals off and started washing his feet. Peter is in shock. They're all in shock. This is the Messiah. This is God in the flesh. No, no, he, he's not the one to do this. It says he poured this water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He came to Peter and he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And he and, he, and Jesus answered, and he says, what I do, you don't realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter says, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is, in, is completely clean. He says, you are clean, but not all of you. He's talking about Judas. And in verse 12, he says, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? He says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one sent greater than the one who, who sent him. He said, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. The Lord and the teacher, the master of the king, stooped down to the lowest servant in the culture of that day, and washed his disciples' feet. Disciples who were in just a few hours were going to be denying that they knew him. Peter was going to curse and swear that he did not know him. And he's washing their feet. Judas was going to go betray him, and he's washing his feet. He says, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve In Philippians 2, he says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, and do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Listen to this. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Who's not as good as you in here today? And you know, let me tell you something. We're all guilty of this one. We're all guilty of it right now. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interest, 
but also for the interest of others. And this is a lot of the reason why people will not say, I want to serve as a deacon. Because they're more about their own personal interest than they are the body of Christ. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen to this. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Him washing the saints' feet was not the greatest act of humility that he performed. It's when he went to the cross and he died in your place. He became fully obedient to the will of the Father. And I want to make I want you to know this today. There's not a one of us in here that was worth dying for. Now, I'm not trying to put you down. I'm just trying to put the reality in your mind. And in spite of that, Jesus Christ went to the cross. He humbled himself as a servant. And he tasted death for every one of you that know the Lord today. Now, my question to you is this. Do I really want to be like Jesus? Because if you really want to be like Jesus, then you're going to have to serve. Some of you will serve as deacons, but you all will serve. Listen, you can't love people without serving people. It's impossible. If you say you love someone, but yet you don't serve that person, you don't love them. You can't love God without serving people. And these people include your family. These people include your church. They include friends. They include enemies. Our musicians would come. Church, I want to encourage you today. To really search your heart, to seek the Lord, and ask yourself, am, am I really a servant? And I'm going to tell you a really good test, and you've heard me say it before. It's an easy thing to say, I have a servant's heart. We'll go do something, we feel good about it, and we say, I just got a servant's heart. But the, really way you, the way you really want to find out if you have a servant's heart is see how you respond when somebody treats you like a servant. You see, servant isn't owed any thanks. They're not owed anything. They're a servant. But in spite of the, the Christian world we live in where people go get, you know, they nothing against getting degrees, but the way the system works is like those letters behind your name Paul's told us about today, and like this is the mover and the shaker and all these things, I'm going to tell you something. That God does not look at that stuff. God looks at the character of a man. He looks at the love that man has for people and how he serves them. That's what God looks at, whether anybody knows who you are or not. God bless each one of you.